Okay, welcome everybody. Uh, for today's uh, shear, I wanted to discuss a topic which is very, very important. My wife reminded me that she thinks a few years ago, I might have given a, a version of the shear. Um, I don't remember, but that's why you get married, so that your wife reminds you of all sorts of things you forget. But it's also true that uh, not only do we have lots of new people, uh, but this is one of those topics which I think is so important that it's worth repeating. Uh, sometimes the rabbis just sneak in things and hope that people don't remember. But here I would be happy if people remembered it because it's still worth uh, reviewing. That's how important a topic I think this is. And what I'd like to do, uh, even just kind of as a methodological point, I'll just point out at the outset something that I think uh, has many, many uh, parallels uh, in life, uh, in learning, I should say, which is that sometimes the most familiar stories to us are the ones that we appreciate and understand the least. Uh, and often when we can approach a story which we all already know, but perhaps for, with a deeper uh, level of analysis and with fresh eyes, um, not only will we see things that we never saw before, but then that, of course, can hopefully enrich uh, an experience. So we are on the eve of Lagwa Omer, and we know that since, uh, for most of us, uh, we've been practicing the Minahage of Avelos, we have music, uh, in case you're wondering why my beard looks so scraggly, it's not only you, my wife says this every day, um, so we, we don't get haircuts, music, all those kind of things, so that's been uh, ready for f- quite a few weeks, and we're hopefully, many of us, about to, uh, for those who have the Minahage of First Sphere, as I guess it's called, uh, shortly going to be able to uh, emerge from that. But we all know that the phenomenon of Avelos, the idea of the Sphira being a sad time, is not at all natural or obvious. When you look in the Chumash, it doesn't describe anything sad in this period. And if anything, the classical understanding of counting Sphira to Omer is an exciting thing. We're getting excited for Shavuos, we're getting excited for Matan Torah. So how and when did this become a sad thing? And the most common explanation for that relates to Rabbi Akiva, his students, and the Lagbar Omer story. Now, there's been much development and embellishment of this over the centuries, but the core source of all of that is the first source on your sheet, which is the Gemara in Masechta Yevamos. And this is a very simple, straightforward story. You all know it. Some of you may have even seen this inside before, but let's just begin with the Gemara, and this is where it all begins. Says the Gemara, source number one. Shneim eser elef zugim talmidim hayulol Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Kiva had 12,000 pairs of students. Chavrusas, which you know, I didn't do so well in math. Uh, the Platonic home, they're math geniuses. But uh, the Gottliebs, we go to the Platonics for help. Um, but even I can do that math. 24,000 students uh, did Rabbi Kiva have. You know, to the extent that you call that a base medrash or a yeshiva, you know, the biggest one in the world. And the Gemara even describes how, you know, from north to south, the length and breadth of Israel. And says the Gemara, middle of the first line, shockingly, horrifically, Kulan Mesu Echad. They all died in some single defined period. Now, if that wouldn't be shocking enough, you know, kind of imagine the pandemic times, right? This one period of time where all of a sudden Nebuch people start dying. Even more shocking, if we didn't already know this, but it really is shocking if you think about this from fresh, you know, from fresh lenses and you think about it for the first time. Why did they die? Because they didn't treat each other with respect. They didn't have good midos, they didn't have good derech eretz. Now, as shocking and as horrible as that is to digest, the Gemara actually points out it is even worse than that. Because evidently, this wasn't just the biggest yeshiva in the world, it was the totality of all of Torah learning at that time. Now, if that's not bad enough, Remember, this is before the printing press. All of Torah Sheba'al Peh was literally Ba'al Peh. It was all based on the oral tradition. In other words, 
what kept Judaism going from generation to generation? Teacher to student, teacher to student. Well, if all of a sudden now you have all of the students dying, as in addition to the human tragedy, and even the immediate intellectual tragedy, you actually have something even worse, which is vulnerability now for the entire Jewish enterprise. The whole experiment of Judaism was vulnerable. right? Who's going to convey Judaism to the next generation? They all died. Says the Gemara, Olam Shamein. The world was barren. And here it doesn't mean, of course, in the agricultural sense. It means in the intellectual, spiritual sense. Everything is gone. All of the Torah centers, all of the rabbis, all of the future rabbis, everything is gone. Ad Shabbat Rabbi Kiva. It was none other than Rabbi Kiva himself. Eitzel Rabbaseinu Shebedarom. V'shan Alehem. Says the Gemara Rabbi Kiva was able to scrounge up five students who survived. And Rabbi Kiva, along with this small handful of students, they were in the south, and they resurrected the entire enterprise. These five students, all Tanaim, we're still in the epoch of the Mishnah, Tanaim, these five students along with Rabbi Kiva are the basis of the entire Torah Sheb Alpeh that we have to this very day. Judaism as we know it, not only that it survived, but literally the content, intellectually and otherwise, of Judaism is all based on the teachings that were salvaged at the moment of the greatest despair and the greatest vulnerability by these five heroic figures with their ultimately incredibly heroic Rebbe, Rebbe Akiva. Incredible. Now the Gemara adds as a PS, and by the way, where was that one period of time where all these 24,000 students died? Made Pesach of Aratzeres. That took place between Pesach and Shavuos, known as the Sphira period. Now, on a human drama level, every time I see this Gemara, I can't help but be overwhelmed emotionally and just with, I don't, the only word I can think of is admiration, but I don't even think that word does justice to what I think about Rabbi Akiva. I can't even imagine the devastation, the depression, the despondency that he must have felt. You know, and I'm not making light of any of the tsaras that can happen in our individual lives. When we get knocked over, when we get something that is hard for us, to be resilient is not so simple. And I'm just talking about in our own lives. Let, so imagine something of the magnitude of this. I remember, again, just as an analogy, it's the closest I can even think of it. What was it, 10 or so years ago, in the famous Merkaz Harav terrorist attack, there was eight students who died. I still living uh, in Baltimore at the time. So it's more than 10 years, what am I saying? Uh, more than 10 years. Uh, I've been in Israel for 13 years. Um, so maybe 15 years ago, 14 years ago, something like that. And uh, I remember after the Shiva, the Rosh Shiva there, Rabbi Weiss, um, he was interviewed by, by Yael Dayan on Israeli TV. I'd never heard of Yael Dayan, although his, her last name was familiar. Uh, and I had previously not heard of Rav Weiss. But he, she interviewed him. Again, she's secular, but it was very respectful. It was a real interview, but it was not a, you know, a flighty interview, but it was very respectful. And I was just blown away by his inner spiritual courage. Uh, he broke down crying more than once during the interview. But I remember him saying that when this happened, he felt it must be his fault. If this happened on his watch to his Talmidim, Hashem must be saying, you're not worthy, you're doing something wrong. Now how he himself picked himself up to move on, because eight people died, I can't imagine. And he was, it was, not, it was not, this was not a performance. This was as authentic as you can imagine. 
So that was eight people, Nebuch. I'm not making light of that. But Rabbi Kivya had 24,000. If this would be me, I would crawl up in a ball on the floor and you would never hear from me again. I could never have come back from something like that. I know myself. So the fact that Rabbi Kivya was able to do that, not the focus of our shir, but you can't read this Gemara without at least acknowledging the heroism of Rabbi Akiva just on an inner level. The courage is unbelievable. However, sorry. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Um, does it say the reason? Like, the Gemara says, Shalom Nahogu That's all we have from the Gemara. So, now, so when people are, are like what happened in Rome, right? Okay. Most of those, I mean, all those people seem, seem like Sadiqim. I'm saying I went to a lot of the shivas, I happen to have known okay. the people. It doesn't, in those days, it would give a reason, right? So, Today, like, correct, we, we, 100%. We live, I mean, this is, Mayron is just one example. And it was a dramatic example, and it was a recent example. But you're asking a very reasonable question of a kind of a tzaddik varalo. Uh, we, we all have a human instinct. I think it's totally natural. It goes back perhaps even as early uh, as the time of the Tanakh, for sure, even. Uh, when things happen, we want to understand why. And I often point out, that just because you know why, wouldn't make the pain any less, per se. It doesn't bring the person back. But there's something in, inside of us that feels like we would like to know. And at various points in history, they did know. We live, at a, we live in an epoch in history, which we don't have Ruach HaKodesh, we don't have prophecy, we don't have Nevoah. We don't know. I happen to be of the camp that is incredibly, uh, I feel, I'm very opinionated uh, in the sense that I think it's horrible when people offer suggestions in our generation. Because trust me, they don't know why. I mean, it happened as recently as just a few days ago. I don't want to mention any names, chas shalom. But there's a certain tendency of a certain part of the Orthodox community that wants to give explanations for everything. I understand where it's coming from, but the tradition, the tradition I inherited from my Rebbeim is that if you're not a Navi and you don't have Ruach HaKodesh, far better to keep your mouth shut. It happens uh, to be that my girl's school, there's one teacher, it's awful, like girls came home the first time, you know, she, I'm not going to say the reason that she gave, but she said the reason why... You know, all these figures are happy, especially in the Nebrak. She used the Nebrak one. Okay. It's because X, Y, Z. And my girls came home and they were like, right. they said, you know, So your daughters have a good inner compass. Right. So like, like, they were just like, but not every, a lot of those... Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll reform the educational system another time because it definitely needs to be reformed. Uh, but uh, I think it's all a fair point. It's all a fair point. And, you know, what... The lesson that I want to derive from this is not that whether it's Mayron or something else, therefore we can figure it out. That's not the lesson, and I'm glad you brought up the opportunity, give, give the opportunity your question gives me the opportunity to be clear about that. Nevertheless, given that the Gemara did give an explanation for that Sara, there, there are lessons that we can learn. But in order to learn the lessons that I want to share from th- this story, I think, even again, a story that's familiar to all of us, I want to ask three basic questions. Perhaps some, but maybe not even any of them, we've ever thought about. Because it, we just take for granted, because we've always heard these things Rabbi Kiva and his students. So I have three very, very basic questions. The first, again, it seems to be such a straightforward story. I think if we think about it a little bit, we pick it apart, it is not a simple story at all. Number one, how could it be that this happened to, of all people, Rabbi Akiva? Mm-hmm. What do I mean by that? I, we made a, kind of a little bit of a joke, but really on a serious topic about educational reform, Right? If you had a school, and frankly they do exist, if you had a school in which they never focused on good midos, 
and characters and menschlichkeit. They just focused on learning and mitzvos. And then you saw kids who went to that school acting like Vildechai is in the pizza shop and being rude in the park and, you know, pushing around, pushing. Okay, it, it wouldn't, you wouldn't think it's an acceptable behavior, but we would understand because they're in families or in schools that don't prioritize that. Okay, and then we would say, oh, whatever we would say. But like, it would cohere. The fact that this happened to Rabbi Akiva is incoherent. It doesn't make any sense. Because Rabbi Akiva, as we all know, first of all because it says in the Medrash in source number two, and second of all because the Yeshiva Boys Choir said it's a song, so it has to be true. <laughs> Rabbi Akiva Omer, Zeklagadoba Torah, V'yahaftorecha Kamocha, was Rabbi Akiva's banner. You know, like a lot of schools, they have like, you know, the title of the school, and then like on all the stationery, and sometimes even on the wall of the building, you know, that catch line, what's their motto, what's... The, Rabbi Akiva, all the stationery, and all of the emails that went out from Rabbi Akiva's yeshiva, underneath the name Rabbi Akiva was a one line. He was banging this message over and over again. Be a mensch, love your neighbor like yourself, treat everyone with respect. This was the mantra of Rabbi Akiva. So how could it be in a school, so to speak, to use it on, a, on our level? A teacher, an exemplar Rabbi Akiva, I don't have time now to go into it, but the Gemara is full of examples of Rabbi Akiva himself, not just talking the talk, but walking the walk. Rabbi Akiva was a tzaddik in Benam L'chavero too. And he didn't just do it himself. He practiced what he preached and he preached it. He taught it. He emphasized Benam L'chavero. Everything that we say we would want our schools to do, don't just teach them Gemara, teach them good midos and being a mensch. Rabbi Akiva did it. And of all people in all history, the greatest failure in Miram Lechavero in all of history happened to be Kiva of all people? Doesn't make any sense. How could it be? How did that happen? How do we understand that? Question number one. Question number two. It's terrible that they didn't have good cover. It's terrible that they didn't have Derek Heretz. I don't mean to minimize obviously that at all. But is that something really worthy, deserving of a death penalty? You ever heard that if a person is in a mensch, therefore they deserve to die? Is there a source that indicates such a thing? Our tradition, it's not shy about criticizing behavior and letting us know what's deserving of this punishment or that punishment. Since when? There's being rude. And it's not, again, if you, it's not even necessarily to, you know, they weren't nice to the old people. This is, they said to each other. So because some 16-year-old was rude to another 16-year-old, therefore they deserve to die, or maybe they're 26, what's the difference? Again, I'm not minimizing that you shouldn't be a, you shouldn't be a mensch. It seems to be a little bit out of proportion. The punishment does not seem to fit the crime, to put it mildly. And last but not least, my strong instinct, again, this, the premise I'm about to say I cannot prove, but to me it seems overwhelmingly likely, um, is that even though they died at this time, it wasn't as if right after Pesach they started acting mean to each other. You know, the, the matzah didn't sit well, and they were just grumpy uh, from uh, GI tract problems, and therefore they just started being mean to each other. It seems to me intuitive that this was an existing problem. Did it go back six months or six years? I have no idea. But when the Gemara says they all died at one time, it doesn't say they just started misbehaving at that time. So if I'm right that it had been an existing problem, so then that begs a third question, which is, if it was an existing problem, why Dafka then? Why Pitom? Why all of a sudden right then? And the Gemara is clearly emphasizing it. The Gemara in, in three lines says it twice. Not just that they died. Right? That's the, the headline is that they died. So that's a, it doesn't seem to be so relevant. There was dafke the Perak Echad. And then we need to know three lines later when the Perak Echad was. It was dafke during Pesach and Shavuos, that, that interim period. It, clearly that's part of the story. Not just that they died, but when they died. 
And the emphasis does not seem to be that's when they started sinning, but that's when they were punished. But again, if I'm reading this correctly, so then why were they punished Dafka then? Why couldn't it wait till some later time? And if it's so bad that they deserve to die, why weren't they punished before then? And these, I think, are just three simple, I'm not even saying these are such brilliant questions, but because they're so simple, I actually think that's why they're so compelling. And again, because we think that we know the story so well, we might even overlook these questions. So of the three questions, I think the key question is the first one. How could it be that this happened to Rabbi Kiva's students? Of all people, Rabbi Kiva, who is exactly what we all say we would want our children's and our grandchildren's teachers to be like, a mensch in his own personal life, teaching mensch teaching derech eretz, emphasizing the importance, and yet, his students. How could it be? So, very, very briefly, I want to share with you two answers, but it's really just a setup for the third answer, which is my answer, which obviously I think is the right one. But, but the first two I want to mention are one from a great Hasidic thinker, then one from one of the great Muslim masters. So source number three, you have the Shemi Shmuel, the Sukkot Shavar Rebbe, and he points out that the mistake was that they took their Rebbe's words too literally. You see, again, I'm not going to read much of this inside, we don't have time, but at the end of the third line, he says here, they, when they saw they thought each person should treat each other mamish. They literally took Rabbi Kiva's, they internalized Rabbi Kiva's lessons so literally that they saw themselves as completely united with everybody else. Now what could be bad about that? Simple, says the Shemi Shmuel. Does it make any sense for the left hand to be mechabed the right hand? You don't give yourself covered, that's absurd. You give other people covered. But they didn't look at anyone else as different than them. So just like they didn't take themselves seriously, they didn't take their friends seriously. Now obviously that's not what Rabbi Kiva meant. But sometimes that happens in teaching and in life, parenting and all sorts of things, right? People take us too literally. They didn't understand exactly what we meant. So that's his theory of how this could have happened. That's one possibility. A second possibility, source number four, Rabbi Chesko Levenstein, who was the Mashkiach and the Panovich Yeshiva, among others, a very, very famous Balmuser from earlier in the 20th century. So he suggests a different explanation. You see where it's underlined on the third line. Rabbi Kiva taught them to love each other, and they did love each other. But you know what Rabbi Kiva also taught, like we would like to think anyone would teach? That people who run after vanity, who run after honor, and just want everyone to be mechabedem, that's a bad thing. A person shouldn't run after covid. that's not the way to live life. Right? Uh, that's a very reasonable message. I would hope we would all believe that. We'd all give that over to our children. I hope our schools give that over to our children. But they went too far with that as well. Because they were so focused on the negative vibe that they had received, the negative message that they had received for covered, they made a critical mistake. And by the way, for those who are familiar, this is part of the overall Musser uh, worldview. This is one of the great insights of Rabbi Shal Salanter in general, which is that we need to be, you forgive the expression, but we all need to be a little schizophrenic. By which I mean to say as follows. What we look at ourselves is not the way we're supposed to look at other people. They made that mistake. They had been taught that they shouldn't run after Kavo, they shouldn't just all be about the honor and the vanity and the publicity and the fame. And they internalized that to such an extent, they said, well, it's bad for me to have COVID, so why would I want to give it to you? Covered is just bad, very simplistic. 
What they really needed to understand, says the Ori Cheskel, it was something a little bit more nuanced and a little more sophisticated. Covet is bad when you're looking after your own covet, but you have to be able to differentiate. When you're thinking about someone else's honor, that's a good thing. Rabbi Yisrael Salantar used to say, even something as basic as, is, is this thing, is it physical or is it spiritual? So he said, even that, it depends on, is it for you or for somebody else? He used to say, but for you, parnasa or food, that's physical. But Yenem's parnasa is your ruchnis. If someone knocks on the door and says, you know, I'm, I'm trying to collect, I'm, I'm suffering, is that a gashmius question? You helping someone else, that's not physicality, that's spiritual. Right, if someone would come, if someone is, you know, thinking about things from a perspective, you know, right now they're having a downturn, Rahman al-Islam is difficult financially. So on some objective level, isn't the message, have emuna, have bitachon, have faith in God, Hashem decides on Rosh Hashanah, you'll get whatever you need, Hashem loves you, have faith, it'll be okay. I think that's a reasonable religious message. But if somebody knocks on the door and says, Nebuch, I lost my job and I have this number of kids and this many obligations, should you be telling them, have emuna, have bitachon? That's chas v'shalom. How much you should give them, that's a different question. But what you tell yourself is not what you tell the person who needs your help. It's, you know, it's not a... Again, you tough it out when you hurt your knee. Doesn't mean you should tell someone else to tough it out. Maybe they can't. There's certain built-in, again, for lack of a better term, schizophrenia, says Rav Soslanter, that is the bedrock of an entire Musr way of looking at life. So it says, Ori Cheskel, source number four, maybe that was why the Rabbi Kiva students messed up. It's a, a second possible theory. Not that they took the words of Hafnerecha Kamocha too literally, but that they took the idea that covet is bad too literally. They didn't realize they had to differentiate between their pursuit of personal covet, which is a bad thing. You don't want, like people who run after their own covet, but we want to give a covet to other people. And it seems obvious, but sometimes these things get lost in translation when you're teaching students. Okay? Two possibilities. Now I want to suggest a third possibility, and I want to introduce the third possibility by a survey. And here's where this class becomes participatory. You need to respond, okay? Here we go. I'm not asking you a rhetorical question. If I was teaching students, I would give an analogy of uh, young people and maybe even people back uh, from yeshiva or from seminary. But in this case, since uh, we have mostly an adult crowd and a mature crowd either way, um, so I'll give an example of not uh, somebody who you recently saw who was back after a year in yeshiva or seminary, but a new person moved into the neighborhood. This is Maisim Bechoyom, in a neighborhood like ours, there's always new people moving. Um, Assuming we can keep the prices to something somewhat reasonable, maybe people will still continue moving. And if not, then they won't. But that's a separate discussion. Um, All of a sudden, imagine uh, your husband uh, comes home from shul, let's say, and tells you, "So I just saw somebody new in the neighborhood. Or you were in the grocery store, or you were at shul, or you were at a shir, and you met somebody new who had moved into the neighborhood, and you're describing that to your children, you're describing that to your spouse, you're describing whoever you're describing to. And whoever, whether it's you or somebody else is telling you about, oh yeah, so I saw someone new move to the neighborhood. They're really religious. Like, really from. Okay, stop. These things do happen, for real. Okay, we, don't have to, we can admit it. Okay, now, in your mind's eye, what do you think that person, your best friend who just met a new person in a shear, your spouse who just told you they met a new person in shul or at the grocery store, and they say, oh, so-and-so just moved in, they're down the block from us, blah, 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 their kids are in the same, and they're really religious, super from. What do you, what do you think that they, what did they have in mind? What went into your mind? Okay, that's not a rhetorical question. Ladies, what do you think? There's no wrong answers here. What went into your mind? What do you think? When somebody tells you, oh yeah, I just met these new people, I met a new rabbi, he is really religious. 
Whatever it is, something like that. Male, female, does not matter to me. Good, so it could be a dress thing. So if it's a woman, it's some form of extreme sneers. If it's a man, maybe it has to do with uh, the color of his clothing, or if he's wearing a hat or something like that. Good, that's one category. What else? I think that's a very good answer. What else? What else could it be? It's also implying that the neighborhood is not as religious as the people. Good, I think that maybe. But what, is, what did it tell you about that person? before? You, somebody just told you about, oh, so-and-so is so religious, and now you're about to meet them. What are you, what are you imagining? What give it? What, what would give it? What would give a clue to you or a clue to somebody else to say, "Oh yeah, that person is so religious." It could be something external, like clothing. What else could it be? Good. Like, for example, what? Like, Baruch Hashem, Baruch Hashem, Mitzvah Hashem, Mitzvah Hashem. I'm going to go to the grocery store, Mitzvah Hashem. If and Hara, I can get. Right? There are people, who, you know, the, the, the sentences are twice as long as everyone else's. Good. It could be that. Okay. Good. It could be the school that they picked. Very good. What else? I think all good. It really is almost, there's no wrong answer here, I promise. Anybody else? The amount of kids they have. Okay. <laughs> Speaking from one generation to about another, but yes. Good. I think absolutely. There are certain people who that, that's exactly right. 100%. 100%. What else? Okay, maybe, yeah, in Israel, this is not an American thing, but in Israel, they only eat this hashkacha, not that hashkacha. I was in the Shomron last night. I was in Shiloh. Uh, there was a group who was visiting a Syrian uh, group from between New Jersey and Flatbush and other groups. They were on a tour, and they asked me to present to them. Um, and they, they got there for dinner, and I was just kind of waiting around until they were inviting me to speak. So the person thought that I wasn't sitting down. He says, don't worry, hakolu chumra, hakolu chumra. <laughs> and he didn't think, you know, he assumed because I was wearing a white shirt. It must be that's why I wasn't eating. Um, as opposed to the fact that I just didn't feel comfortable sitting down with complete strangers eating if I was about to get up and speak. But be that as it may. Good. So these are all possibilities. We could probably think of three or four more, right? Now, I want you to think about the following. Pretty much every example that you gave, and all the ones of you who are too shy to say something, but I know you're thinking of something, I know you are, um, virtually always, and all of them I should say, were all what we would call ben adam lamakom. Not a single person suggested, and tell me if you were thinking it, because I don't think you were, I guess, that the reason you think so-and-so so religious it's because you saw how exquisite their midos were. And they were such a mensch. I saw somebody fall down in the middle of the street, and this person helped them, and they walked them all the way to this, and they walked to... Right? Rabbi Ayah Levine was known as the Tzadik of Yerushalayim. It was because of Benam Lechavero he got that reputation. But, and here's the point, I'm not trying to criticize anybody. I have done this survey, or a version of this, with the Shiva boys, the seminary girls, and with numerous adult groups. And so far, not a single one has broken the pattern. So maybe it's a criticism, but if it is, it's not a criticism of you, it's a criticism of everybody. But what I really want is not to criticize, what I really want is to draw out the lesson. What's the lesson? The lesson is that there's something that is hardwired into our brains, into our consciousness, that associates spirituality and religiosity specifically with things that are more ritual. We call it Lamakum. Things that relate to us and Hashem. Candles, tzniya, stavening, tefillin, tzitzis, external markers of that like clothing. It's not, I want to be clear, not, not you and not anyone else I've ever spoken about this. It's not that we don't think it's important to be a nice person. I'm not saying that. Everyone in this room and everyone I've probably ever spoken to about this topic realizes it's very, very important to have good midos. But here's the key point. 
subconsciously part of our hardwiring. We think it's important to be a good person, but we don't assume that that is part of what it means to be a religious person. We have this machitza in our minds, subconsciously, that there's a difference between being good and being religious. That is a mistake, but is it incredibly ubiquitous in common mistake? And I want to quote, if I could, uh, somebody who was actually my wife's professor at one point in graduate school, um, one of the more unique and impressive figures uh, in the recent generations in education, Rabbi Dr. Aaron Hirschfried. I don't know so much about him, if I'm not mistaken, I believe he's he was... Yes, he's a Yes, yes, he's a, in his Hasid Yid, yeah. with a PhD, and a leading, a leading expert in his field. He wrote a paper, which was published, which I read many years ago, which he was surveying the Midos and the Derech Eretz of Yeshiva students. The results were exactly, unfortunately, as we would have expected. Not good. But his article and his study was trying to figure out why that is. How come? Is it that they're not teaching it in schools? And if I remember correctly, his basic upshot wasn't that the schools aren't teaching it, but that whether it's how they were teaching it or even irrespective of that, but the point was, from the perspective of the students, even when they got the message that it's good to be nice, it's good to be kind, it's good to be all those things, in their mind, it didn't translate as that's how you are religious. The way he termed it, people don't get a religious buzz from high, from being kind to other people, in the same way that they might after an incredible Kol Nidre, or some other quote-unquote religious experience. He made the point, this is a classic line, if it was worth coming to the Shir, if only for this, you will never forget it. So it was worth coming to that. He says, the key, we will not be where we need to be in our community, until our kids realize that chutzpah is muktza. How's that for a line? Right? Ask any kid who grew up in any of our homes from the time they're three years old or less, muktza. It's the biggest avera of all time. Everything in Shabbos has to do with muktza, even if it's not muktza, but it's okay. When the kids are young, you don't have to correct them. They can't do X or Y because it's muktza. Good. And yet, Let's be honest, those very same kids who would never dare do something muksa on Shabbos, which if it's actually muksa, not just the colloquial term, is at worst a rabbinic prohibition, but to be chutzpahdik to their parents, to be chutzpahdik to a teacher, things which are probably Yisrei Da'oraisa, there's a total bifurcation in our minds. I think that's very real. I think it's unfortunate, but I think it's very real I think our little survey is an illustration of that phenomenon. But it's not new. It's not new. Take a look, for example, at source number five. This is an astounding Gemara. The Gemara is, which you don't have in front of you, you have a commentary, Tosvot, but the Gemara is describing a certain period of history where the Kohanim were unfortunately corrupt. And the Kohanim, when you would go to the base of Mikdash, not only do they have to prepare the animal and offer the sacrifice on your behalf, but the halach is that the kohanim have to have the right intentions. Every carbon has its own rules, and the kohanim have to have the right rules in mind when they're doing the various parts of the sacrificial service. If a kohen has the wrong intention, which presumably would only happen by accident, but if it happened, it disqualifies the carbon. It's known as pigul. It disqualifies the carbon. This was a period in history where the kohanim were deliberately sabotaging people's carbon. They were deliberately, intentionally having the wrong intention, 
so as the carbon not being effective, right? Bad thing in history. Chachamim at some point realized that this is going on. So they make a takana, they make an enactment that any time that there will be a pigul or something with the carbon, it will make the kohen tamay. Now, if you know, a kohen can't become tamay. It's not good, it's not good spiritually, it's also not good for business. A kohen can't work in the face of Mikdash if he's tamay. It's not a good thing for it. It's an event. So this was intended to dissuade the kohanim from doing that. Okay? With that background in mind, comes along Tosfot, source number five. It says, I don't understand, how is that going to help? One second. If these Kohanim are so corrupt that they're willing to deliberately sabotage other people's carbon, which is not only in a certain sense a ritual problem, but tachlis in our language, what will we call that on some level? Theft! To deliberately misuse other people's property, they paid good money, they assumed in good conscience you were going to offer their carbon, and you deliberately sabotage. It's not only of giving a bad carbon, they're stealing from you. And now you think if you add another Avera to the list, oh, now they're going to stop. All of a sudden by telling them that they're going to become Tame, and that's a problem, because now they're going to begin bringing a carbon with Tuma, now all of a sudden they're going to see the light? Obviously they don't care. That Tosos' question. And in answering the question, Tosos illustrates for us a profound, depressing, but profound psychological truth. Yeshlomar, where it's underlined, source number five, Afla Rashaim Chamiralahu Tama. In fact, says Tosos, yes, there are all sorts of people who psychologically can rationalize hurting others. And you and I would say objectively, bad people. Obviously, they don't care what the Torah has to say, look what they're doing. But even though we could call them, says Tosos, from the very fact that they're hurting other people, they're already Rishayim, they're wicked. But to be Tomei, to do something ritually unpure, to eat from the wrong Hashkacha, Hashkacha, Chas <gasps> V'Shalom, to create a Chil Hashem that sends them to Otisville, without even thinking about it. But I better have Mahadran food and a Dafyomi Shir and a Minion. You look at these people, it's completely, it doesn't make any sense. If you care so much about this Ashkacha versus that Ashkacha on your, uh, you know, uh, beef stroganoff on Tuesday dinners, did you forget about that when you were stealing? Did you forget about that when you were creating a Chil Hashem? When you were parading it to court every day with a big yarmulke? And the answer is they didn't forget. It's this kind of schizophrenia, which is, again, it's somehow built in, hardwired to many, many people. We can somehow separate in our mind being from and being good. And in the box called from, it's kashros and it's sneers and it's davening. There's a few things. Because those are what give us that from high, as Dr. Fried said, that buzz. We feel a little bit off the ground. You know, we're a little bit, you know, floating like on a good davening or something. Those other things, uh, whatever. But not in the from box. This is, goes back to the beginning of time. It's part of human nature. In light of all this, I would like to suggest, again, I haven't seen anyone who says this, but this is my theory. I think that's what happened with Rabbi Kiva's students. We asked, how could it be Rabbi Kiva of all people? It was Rabbi Akiva who, it didn't work. He's the one who was always teaching. And I think one of the lessons of the story is that Rabbi Kiva may have been teaching, 
he may have been selling, but they weren't buying it. They are not the first Talmudim and not the last to think they know better than the Rebbe. Not the first Talmudim, not the last Talmudim who may even have thought we're a little firmer than the Rebbe even. We've seen all of that in my day. Rabbi Kiva may say it, but come on, we really know what he cares about. How long our Shmon Esrei is. He may say, the Haftarach HaKamocha is the Klal but I know what he really cares about, which is how many Dapim of Gemara did I memorize. And if I do that, then I'm a prized Talmud. Whatever, yeah, he's saying it. But come on, that's not what really needs to be from. And I think that is the incredibly profound and instructive, albeit depressing, but if we can learn from it, then hopefully it's not so depressing, it can be instructive, lesson for all of us, which is that we need for ourselves, and then hopefully for ourselves, if we, if we can do it for ourselves, then we have a fighting chance of imparting that to our families and to our children, to break this misconception. Again, I don't think the gap is as far, I'm not, I'm not saying, I'm not saying, there might be individuals who this, what I would say about, but I'm not saying as a general rule, people don't care about being nice, don't care about being good. I think people do care mostly. But they make a subtle, critical mistake that they differentiate that from what it means to be religious, to be pious. Pious has one connotation, and good is something else over there. And there are many people who can live without being good who can't live without being pious. Now you could argue even that's a mistake. But the, the real mistake is much more fundamental, which is that they should realize that being good is in the box, and that they can't be pious without being good. And I would suggest that that is an incredibly common and current mistake. It probably predates Rabbi Kiva's students, but it's my contention that that also explains the downfall of Rabbi Kiva's students. Now, if I'm right, that would then help us, I think, answer the other two questions, which was, why uh, is it so bad? I mean, again, it's not nice to, it's, it's not nice to have bad midos, but since when do you get uh, killed for that? It's a death penalty. It's a capital offense. And secondly, why Dafka at that time? So if you take a look, and uh, we'll use the remaining time just to go through the other two uh, questions, uh, some of these other sources, I want to illustrate this uh, phenomenon. Um, I'm going to skip sources six and seven, although they would have also made this point as well. Uh, but just for the sake of time, let's go down to uh, source number eight. And with this, I want to answer question number two. Why was it so bad? Since when... Do you deserve death for that? So one possible answer, I didn't put it on your sheet, but there are some of Farshim who say that the reason that they got punished so harshly was because it was a chil Hashem. It wasn't they were being punished for having bad midos. That they could have gotten a slap on the wrist. Why did they get such a harsh punishment? Because as we all know, it's bad enough your heart sinks when you see the headline in the news with an obviously Jewish name, and let alone if you see a picture with a yarmulke of someone you know, being led away in handcuffs. But when the first name is rabbi, and especially if the beard is long, our heart sinks even more for absolutely justifiable reasons. Because it's a much bigger chil Hashem, obviously. So imagine now all the rabbis, the biggest rabbis, are all jerks. Not just some yeshiva guy while you're waiting in line at the pizza shop with your kids, and some yeshiva guys are being rude and loud. Right? That's one level of a problem. But imagine if it was the Rosh Hashiva and the chief rabbi who were acting like that. Unfortunately, uh, not that long ago when it came to the chief rabbi, we didn't have to imagine. And then he went to jail, and that wasn't Bechil Hashem. But that's the point. I'm not minimizing his crimes, but if it had been somebody else, it would be one level of Bechil Hashem. But the very fact that it was a chief rabbi. So that's one possibility to explain. But there are a whole other group of Mepharshim who give a different explanation. And for this, take a look, for example, at the famous Mishnah in source number 8. Perkei Avos, 
it's, the way we colloquially say the term is not exactly the way it's found in Prakiyavos, but this is the earliest source, maybe, for the idea of Derech Eretz Kadma Torah. The way the Mishnah says it, Im ein Derech Eretz ein Torah. Right? If there's no Menshlachait, there's no Torah. So what does that mean? Okay, it's a, it's, it's, we, we know the phrase, what does it mean? So it says Rabbeinu Yonah in source number 9, She'einen Torah, Derech Eretz has to come first, because Torah, by its metaphysical nature, simply is incompatible with a person who doesn't have good midos. Right? Just like a lot of times when people tell you something, it goes in one ear and out the other. So Torah can go in one ear and out the other. But if you want Torah to really take root in a person, seep into the kishkas of a person, make a person better, right? Why do we do this? Why do we go to Shurim? Why do we learn Torah? Not just have a little bit more knowledge, although it's so good, and Torah, there's nothing more intellectually stimulating than good Torah. But that's not really why we're supposed to be doing it. We hope that it makes an impact on us. So again, you have to, you have to want it to make an impact. But, says the Rabbeinu Yonah, even if you had the best of intentions, it doesn't matter if you don't have the right kli. If you pour all the water in the world into a, you know, a bowl that has holes, it's not going to keep the water. A person who doesn't have a good midos, they can learn all the Torah in the world, but in essence is going in one ear and out the other. This is explicitly stated more recently in source number 10 by the great Panovich Rosh Hashiva, Rav Shmuel Rezovsky, who is quoted here as saying, Tikun hamidos hu begeder yitziras kli la saga satora. Exactly the, the image and the mashal, the, the, the metaphor I was using. The idea that without... Torah is this thing. And again, Torah itself is compared to water. So Torah is this thing, again, which we can understand on some level, and on some level it has you know, metaphysical properties. You know, why gravity? What do you mean why? You don't ask why for gravity. And why. Oh, there are certain scientific rules, natural rules of the universe. Kacha, because that's how God made the world. So he also has certain metaphysical rules. You don't ask why. It's not a why, it just is. The metaphysical rule of the universe, as real and as immutable as the laws of gravity or other such things is, Torah cannot be contained in a, in a person who is not the proper receptacle for that Torah. And the condition of being a proper receptacle is having good midos. You turn over, source number 11, another incredibly, incredibly uh, powerful uh, idea is from Reb Chaim Vital. Reb Chaim Vital is one of the early and great Kabbalists, and even though usually 99.9% of what he says I don't understand, because I'm not a Kabbalist, I don't even play one on TV, I'm not a Kabbalist, but... This is very famous and very accessible. He asks a simple question. Why is it, for all the talk, and it, I don't think it's just talk, for all the talk about the importance of good midos, how come when all the different commentaries count the 613 mitzvos, none of them count good midos as a mitzvah? Now, it's a fake, it's a bluff. You keep on talking about how the midos are so important, so how come it's not counted as one of the mitzvos? I wasn't nice. What, what, again, I'm not talking about if I embarrassed you in public. That's a whole other level. But let's say I just wasn't nice to you. I didn't have good midos. What if a, you know, rabbi, come on. Is it us, sir? You've, you've heard such questions before. Maybe you've asked them. I know you don't think it's a good idea, rabbi, but come on. Is it us, sir? Is it a mitzvah? So, uh, first of all, uh, Mr. Simons, I'm going to restart the Zoom, okay? So, um, so, Says Rechaim Vital, I don't understand. If Midos are so important, so how come it's not a mitzvah? So says Rechaim Vital, source number 11, you know why? 
they're too important to be counted as a mitzvah. If I count it as a mitzvah, it is, I've limited it. It's a mitzvah. And uh, not farming on Shemitah is a mitzvah. And putting on tefillin is a mitzvah. The 613 mitzvahs. But says Rechaim Bital, source number 11, Hamidos, Hain hachanos ikariot el They're the prerequisite. I would be limiting midos if I said, oh, they're a mitzvah. There's actually something even more important than a mitzvah. It's the foundation upon which a mitzvah rest. There's no point in discussing one, let alone 613 mitzvahs, if you don't first have good midos. And therefore, what I think this sets us up to understand is the reason that they died wasn't necessarily a punishment. You deserve to die because you did an Avera. If it was just that, as much as we would be upset at their bad midos, we can't honestly say that they deserve to die. We can't honestly say that this punishment fits the crime. It seems to be a little bit exaggerated to be so severely punishing them. But I think the real answer is enachanami. It wasn't a punishment for the severity of the crime, but rather it was a recognition that if they're going to be the rabbis, the teachers of the next generation, if they are the Baalei Hamasora, the ones who are communicating from one generation to the next what Torah is, it's inconceivable that the people who are in that critical role don't represent what it means to be a faithful Torah person. How could it be that the people who are transmitting Torah to the next generation are themselves the greatest distortion of Torah? They weren't punished. It was more of like an amputation than a punishment. Right? I could be trying to punish, you know, in, in, in certain, I may even exist in certain uh, uncivilized countries uh, or parts of the world now. But certainly in ancient parts of his, you know, world history, sometimes they would punish you. You know, they chop off your arm, they chop off your this. But you could also chop off someone's arm or their leg as an amputation to save the body. That's not a punishment, even though it's the same thing. So here also, I don't think they were being punished by being killed. But rather, Hashem was doing an amputation. I can't save Judaism if I don't do take this. Yeah, is it is it an extreme uh, measure? Yeah, of course it's an extreme measure. But sometimes, when the body is that sick, you need to take extreme measures. What are the alternatives? I either can amputate the limb, I can kill all these rabbis, and future rabbis, or I can allow them to remain and give over a distorted version of Judaism to the next generation. It's the very fact that they were so important. It's the very fact that they were all the rabbis from north to south. If I would have let them survive, who would be there to balance out and give the correct message of what Judaism is supposed to be? The answer would be nobody. Because evidently all of them had this fatal flaw, which was not just about them. It was much bigger than them. It was distortion of Torah. If you take a look, years later after this theory, I found that on some level, I was Machab and Baron Cutler, no less. The great architect of Torah uh, in America in the 20th century, and just a great tzaddik and a gadol in his own right. Source number 16. He says where it's underlined, They did not have good midos. They weren't really exemplifying Torah the way it's supposed to be. They simply 
were inappropriate to be the ones who would give over Torah to the next generation. Next line, I was typing too quickly, so I made a mistake. Digam, the haya chaser you can't give over a half a Torah because a half a Torah is a distorted Torah. Sometimes less is the same picture, but just you know, sometimes if you know on our phone, right? You take a picture on your camera phone, right? Sometimes you can make it bigger or smaller, and it's the same picture, just bigger or smaller. But if you make it too small or too big, you actually distort the picture. You're actually not seeing the right thing. If we would have allowed them to continue, it would have distorted. The picture. Torah, it can be bigger, it can be smaller, but you need the right picture. To distort the picture, to distort the picture, that was something that Hashem could not allow to continue. Now, if we accept all of this, I think we can now, we're still on time, which is amazing for me, um, we can now get to the third and final question, which is, well, why now? The Gemara seems to be harping on this idea, Beperek Echad, Mepesachar Atzeres, or something about now. Right, so now we understand, again, let's using our approach to the story. Right, let's review the, our answers to the first two questions, which are basically a way of saying, what's our conception of the story at the moment? The conception of the story is, how could it be Rabbi Kiva, the great education, educator, had the greatest educational failure in history? So we had different theories, but our theory was, yes, Rabbi Kiva was selling, but they weren't buying. They decided in their minds, like so many have done before and since, that it's, it's good to be a good person, but it's not the same thing as being religious and pious and from. That's other things. A horrible mistake, but one that is not actually so hard to imagine at this point. Number two is, well, they deserve to die for that? The answer is, no, they didn't deserve to die, but they had to die. There's a difference. They had to die because otherwise they would have distorted Judaism, distorted the Torah. Okay, but why'd they have to die now? I get it. I know, now I know what they did wrong. I know why that was so dangerous to the body politic of Judaism. It's the whole future sustainability of Judaism. But why now, Dafka? So here, take a look. I want to suggest the following. Source number 13, a very famous Gemara, which we'll probably repeat at some point, or other people and teachers will repeat it, certainly in the next few weeks leading up to Shavuos, that according to one version in Chazal, the Harsinai Torah experience was very coercive. That Hashem, again, this is the metaphor the Gemara uses, and I assume it's a metaphor, not literal, but you could choose to take it literally if you'd like, or metaphorically. It says the Gemara, Hashem lifted up the mountain over the heads of the Jewish people and said, either accept the Torah, or I'm going to cra- come crashing down on you and kill you. Now, why did Hashem need to do that if the people volunteered Nasev and Ishma? That's a famous question, but not for now. But why did Hashem forget Nasev and Ishma? Just stop. Why did Hashem need to force the people? So a lot of different explanations for that. But sure enough, Rav Kook, in source number 14, says, Hashem wanted to take away their free choice. Then, if I put a gun to your head, or hold a mountain over you, either way, I've taken away your free choice. Don't we usually think free choice is a good thing? Says Rav Kook, source 14, there was a bitla b'chira, k'rishakulu mikabu asatora ba'achdus. What was so necessary, says Rav Kook, that required, Hashem said, I'm not taking any chances. Usually it's a good thing to have free choice, but here I can't take a chance. I need to make sure everyone's exactly on the same page. Why? Because it says Rav Kook, a critical component to Kabbalah Satora was unity. If Hashem hadn't done that, so what would have happened? The classic uh, stereotype, 
to Jews three opinions. Ah, uh, Avi, I don't think we should do this. But Ron, ah, I don't think so. Shani, what are you? It's arguing. It's a good idea. It's a bad idea. Hashem said, even if you voted and you voted uh, 80 to 20, but the fighting, I can't handle that. For Kabbalah Satorah, there needs to be Achdus. Now, why is that so important? So, sure, I'll take a look, source number 15 as well. This is, again, we see the Shemi Shmuel, the Sokachover. Bein Pesach Latzeres, Zman Asfira, Huzman hit Kalalut Hamidot, hit Achdut Israel. Ooh, Says Shemi Shmuel, this was not just a one time thing, but for all history, What's the message? What's the, what's the goal of Svirasa Omer? So again, I see a lot of times they have various counts, you know, extra learning and extra tzrius and extra this, extra that. Again, I, uh, I'm for all of those things. But that's actually not really the message of Svirasa Omer. The real avoda of Svirasa Omer is supposed to be Ben Am Lachavero, working on our Midos. So says the Shemishmul, source number 15, the Maral, source number 17, the Chedush Arim, the founding Ger Rebbe. And source number 18, let's just read one line. My elder Zeta, so I, I'm biased. Source number 18. Yemei hasfira bo letakein hamidos. And he connects it to the Mishnah that we saw before. Derech Eretz Kadma Torah. If Shavuos is going to be when we get the Torah, we celebrate getting the Torah on Harsina and Shavuos. So we need to do a Derech Eretz Kadma Torah. First there has to be Menshlech Kait. We're supposed to work on that in the seven weeks of the Sfira. And then we're ready to get the Torah on Shavuos. Hainu! In those weeks, and last but not least, just to make this point, then we'll wrap up. Source number twenty, the last very famous source, the Apterov. Again, one of the great, great Polish Hasidic rebbes, whose whole life he was kind of a modern day Rebbe Kiva, was all about Menshlochkeit and Avas Yisrael. How do I know? Because he named his book the Ohev Yisrael, and he was known as the great lover of Jews. He writes again, source number 20, We have to do exactly what the Jews did when they lived Egypt. We're supposed to be mirroring what they did. Seven weeks after they left Egypt, they got the Torah. They had to purify themselves. So do we do. So you, again, if I would stop there and I let people run around with their own imagination, they would think, the men should go to the mikveh every day, and the women should wear very long skirts, and people should say Tehillim all day, and have our main parties, and I'll get to Zachen. It's all a misdirection, it's a mistake. Not a mistake because those are bad things, but it's a mistake because it takes our focus off of the really important things. Al-Kain Omrim says, the, Oh, if you saw source number 20, second line, Dafko, why do we have the minute of learning Pirkei Avos this time of year? Because the, the tahara that's supposed to take place now is the Benam Lachavero. There is a time and place for everything. And yes, davening is always important. And learning is always important. It's is always important. That's true. And yet there are times to emphasize one or the other. But if you emphasize the wrong thing, even if it's a good thing, but you're emphasizing that instead of what is necessary, you miss the whole point. And now I want to explain the last point with this. We answer our last question. Why did they dafka die then? The answer is because even though this was a terrible flaw that they had, again, it's bad not to have good midos. It's particularly bad when those people are the rabbis and the people who are representing Judaism, and if they would have allowed to continue, it would have distorted Judaism. All true. As bad as that was, it was a survivable flaw 10 months a year. But two months, more or less, between Pesach and Shavuos, what was a bad flaw became a fatal flaw. Because as we know, in the physical body as well, right? you could have a certain condition, you could be susceptible to something, 
But if I put you in a different environment, a different temperature, different topography, you can survive. I take the same person with that condition. All of a sudden now, instead of being in Florida for the summer, they're in a cold environment, the very condition. Or it could be, it has to do with the type of atmosphere. Certain people need more moisture in the air. Some people need a drier air. All sorts of conditions where somebody could be great one time, but if they're in the wrong place at the wrong time, you go out with a jacket. Well, when? In the middle of December with a cold? Right. It all do- so same thing in a spiritual level. It's bad enough to have the flaw in February. It's bad enough to have the flaw in Cheshvan. But it's survivable. But that very flaw during this time of year where the whole focus is what? Derech Eretz Kabbalah the Torah. The whole focus is we need to prepare ourselves we need to prepare ourselves in our midos we need to prepare ourselves in our menstrual kite so that we can receive the Torah. To be missing that the other 10 months of the year is bad enough. But to be missing that dafka this period that you can't survive. That's a fatal flaw. Because it's dafka this two months in which we are the most it's the most necessary and therefore we are the most vulnerable if we're missing it. So I think when it, we put this all together it gives us, I think, a lot to think about in our own lives, hopefully in the lives of our children and our grandchildren. And I think it really puts in perspective, not only, you know, we, we, we finished most of the sphere, but we still got a few weeks to go. Uh, so if we haven't been working on this yet, it's not too late. Um, and hopefully as we draw, you know, for again, none of this is in any way intended to be mezalzal in other parts of our religious life. Of course, those are also important. But we all have limited bandwidth. No one could be working 110% on everything at the same time. It doesn't work that way. Tafasta merubal of tafasta. So a smart person figures out certain periods of their life, certain times, this is what I'm working on now, this is what I'm working on. So to me, it seems like a no-brainer that this is what we're supposed to be working on now. That is really the lesson. And if you ask me how come it is from Rabbi Kiva until now, and you know, sometimes, uh, you know, Beit Shemesh has not always lived up to uh, the ideals of today's year. I don't think it's as bad as people make it out to be. In fact, I'm sure it's not as bad. Uh, things always look worse from afar. Um, but nevertheless, it's not limited to Beit Shemesh, even in, you know, or Baltimore, or Boston, or B'nai Brak. This is a problem that Jewish people have had for 2,000 plus years. If we had fixed it, we already had Mashiach. So clearly this is not a new problem. And we, even though we, again, we, we're like Rebekah students, we keep on saying the right things. But I think what's limiting us, what's holding us back, we still have this subconscious, yeah, but I eat the right ashkacha. So I, so I must be a firm person. I have to think about what this means to us and how each of us, again, in Allah, Amlacha Ligmore, none of us are going to solve all of this on our own, but we can all, in our little Dalaramos, we can all hopefully make a difference. And if a lot of people make a little difference, hopefully that'll add up to a big difference. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.